I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. You're listening to a conversation with stand-up comic Chris Redd, formerly of Saturday Night Live and starring in his HBO Max special, Why Am I Like This? It was recorded before he was assaulted in New York on October 26th. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest today, well, you probably know him as an Emmy-winning writer, part of Saturday Night Live for the past few years. He's now moved on. And his special, Chris Red, Why Am I Like This, answers the question why you would not want to sit next to him on an airplane flight. My guest is Chris Red. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. You start off by talking about going into therapy and what that's done for you. And and, and this thing I've always kind of noticed in your stand-up, it's like you're, you're watching yourself do stand-up, so you're kind of in conflict with yourself. And it's interesting how that comes into play on this in this special. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm glad that, I'm glad that read right, because that is exactly what I'm going for with this special. It's, it's like it's a real introduction of my comedy. You know, I've been on TV longer than I had my special out. Usually you're supposed to do the special before people put you on TV. So it, it was a, it was a conflict. <laughs> For myself in general, I'm like, damn, they kind of already know me, but they don't know me. So, like, how can I introduce myself to people at the same time, not make it seem like I'm just coming out of nowhere and then, like, address the things I'm really going through? And so, like, for why am I like this is a question that I more show why I'm like this than I do answering the question. I think that's the whole point of it is is to kind of just show that I'm I'm working on myself and that it's a long road and and, and there's no real quick answer to those kind of things. I feel like the next special is going to be definitely like a more solid answers or more or just just you know it's going to feel different. But I, I I approach this one like I feel Jay Z approaches his raps, which is like you know Jay Z has grown throughout his his generation, right? Like he's like he was the he was the drug dealer and he was the guy on the business telling you not the drug deal, you know. And so I feel like uh, that's how my body works going to kind of look like. I'm really excited for people to see this part of my story, so I can kind of like stop telling it and start telling the <laughs> other parts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm yeah, I'm just super excited to move on and uh and have people kind of know my full story a little bit and so they can like kind of really appreciate the shit I'm talking. Stuff I'm talking. Sorry. Is this can I swear? I don't know. Maybe it's too late now. Uh <laughs> no, you've already you already opened that door. Don't worry about it. You already set those pit bulls free, as DMX would say. So don't even don't even sweat. It's like that. And especially you actually retell one of my favorite stories of yours. And I'm not going to give too much away. Just going to say the the punch in a certain part of your body and what that does to your body. But you tell it with a different perspective now, and that's. I just wonder part that just comes from being in therapy and lived a few years since you first told that story. First, you were using it in your standup because. And my memory of it is like, basically, it was kind of like a sort of a, a spectator sport when everybody's around you watching this thing happen. And now it's more about how you're going through it. And I thought that was really interesting, just these two different points of view in that particular story. I did uh, uh, this joke or this story on this is not happening. And so people will recognize just because of how long it took me to get to my special that they'll recognize a couple different stories. But it was really important to me that I get more vulnerable with the story and tie it into, I tied more into like what was actually happening then. Cause like I, I told the slice of life story on that show and I'm really proud of that. But I was like, in order to tell my story about my cousin and things I've been through, this story has to exist, but I don't want to just retell it the same way. So I was like, how can I 
how can I make it more engaging and how can I make it different enough where a fan of mine will watch it and be like, oh, this is another side of it or this is another perspective of it or like it's different enough. They're like not just sitting back like, damn, this ain't right. Nothing new. That's crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> So I was like very I had to battle that with it myself first. And then once once like it felt different enough. I was like, all right, then I, I think people might appreciate it. So I'm glad you took it like that because that's what I was going for, man. Hopefully everybody watched it like you watched it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I think they will because it really is a different story. I mean, that sort of center of the piece is still the same, but, you know, it really is an entirely different story. And it was told by a younger person about a younger person. And now it's kind of told by a grown man who's looking back at this, but also looking at his cousin, the cousin you like idolize and wanted to be like, and but now you've included him in the story more in, in a different way. I think it really feels like a lot of growing up has happened since then. And it's also about how you can step in and out of watching yourself to being in the moment in a way that you you didn't do so much. And I think that feels like it's a a new skill for you too. Here, I'm constantly battling, and I did this in the special too, which made editing hell. Uh, fun hell. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I'm balancing kind of like going fully off the top and improvising sets and full shows and like and, and, and sticking to my writing. I think that's always going to be a fight in my head with me, which which makes the shows really fun, uh, but makes the editing really hard. <laughs> but, I, you know, I'm kind of stepping into my own and this will be the, this this time period was the only time I was able to focus on stand up this much because I had always been juggling it with like SNL or, or the other shows I was doing. So I think that kind of showed a little bit more. And then like, as I, as I continue to, to work and, and for the next couple of years, I know I'll, I'll be into different stuff, but stand up will take a precedence over things for the first time in maybe six years. So I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited to like get on the precipice of what the next chapter for, for me is creatively and I'm just glad I'm aware of, of, of how this special looks. It also feels a little bit ADHD-ish, which was the point, too. <laughs> uh, hopefully not too random. <laughs> but the whole thing, as I explain what I'm going through, the whole thing, the whole special goes through the, those exact emotions. So I'm hoping it translates, but I might be just thinking too deep. Wow, we're talking fun hell with my guest, Chris Red, whose special Why Am I Like This is a HBO Max. It's a treatment. You can also hear the showcase at w.com slash the treatment. I mean, what I'm really feeling, too, is not only are you commenting on yourself as you're doing the stand-up, but you're also really engaged with the audience. I'm not going to give it away, but there's one point where somebody says something, you just literally fall to the floor. I mean, because it just catches you. I mean, I love that moment that you kept that in. Oh, man. Yeah, it was really important to me that I put in real improv and elevated improv into the into the set and weave it in. And I've been practicing it for years on stage on the road. And there'll be some nights where I'm like, where it doesn't work out well. And then there's other nights where I'm like, I'm a genius. Holy, shit. you know, <laughs> and everywhere in between. And I'm just like, hope I was like praying that night, you know, that everything will go right because I don't, don't pre plan anything. Uh, when they were seating people, they were like, yo, you want some couples here? And we'll, we'll wop. that's the only thing I ever pre-planned was like, at least there has to be one couple I can see and, and, and vary the ages. And that's besides that, don't tell me nothing else, you know, because I, I, I was I always liked when people like went off the top for real, like in, instead of like, you know, there's pre-planned bits with the crowd. And then, then there's people who just really be going out on a limb and just like shoot you know, taking shots. And I just wanted to to add to the, to, to the latter. I I really like very authentic, just like don't know where this moment's about to go until it gets there, like writing on the spot. That's really my thing. And so I was glad 
I was glad that we were able to salvage like a a, a few of those moments, uh, and they and we picked the best. We had a lot of of it to choose from, but that moment that you're talking about was like the moment of the night. I was like, I didn't know how we're gonna follow that. It just it was just so perfect, bro. Like it, I didn't plan on falling down. I'm gonna say that. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say that like, I was having so much fun on that special. And that special meant so much to me, and I and I had been going through so much too that I was like. I almost don't like how much I was laughing in that special, to be very real. Really? I'm having a great time. I don't regret having a good time. I just look back like, why am I laughing so much? You know, I don't really laugh at myself like that. You know what I mean? Uh, so, But I was just, I don't regret it. You know what I mean? I'm just like, damn, like ne- next special, I'm going to be serious. No. <laughs> but you know what it felt like it had to me, Chris? It felt like it had like improv energy to it, you know? That yeah. kind of thing where you're really feeding off the audience and, you know where you want to go, but you have to be open and listen. And and that's kind of unusual for a stand-up show to have that kind of, you know, exchange. And I thought it was really kind of fun and exciting to watch. Well, thank you, man. I that's that's the that's what I'm trying to bring. I, I want I want my shows to feel like an event. And I want it to feel like you when you come, you're not seeing the same exact show twice because you're not really. I mean, you're seeing pieces of it as I'm building towards an hour, but I mean, now that the special's out, I mean, it's going to be a different show at a time until like, you know, saying kind of build the next hour. Uh, and and I like that. I like the thought of it. There's a lot of risk to that, you know, because if you're not on point, it, it's a lot of bad jokes about to be told, you know, but but uh, <laughs> I think it's worth I think the payoff is worth the risk of it, you know. No, it's interesting, too, just because you can see your energy as a stand-up is very different than your energy as a sketch player where you've got to, it's all about trying to hit, you know, hit your mark and make sure you're looking at the right monitor and all those kinds of things versus just, I mean, your, your shoulders are relaxed the way I don't think I've ever really seen before. And you're doing this, you know, you're kind of like moving around and, and it's interesting to watch your, your posture in, in the show. Y'all are watching me do the thing I, I'm, I'm meant to do. Like, this is this is the thing I was doing before, and I was good at before anything else. This is like, everybody's coming back home with me on this one. Like, speaking to what I was saying earlier, like, a lot of people know me from Sketch and all that. And, and, and Sketch is something that I love a lot and I will do again. Uh, I won't. That's all I'll say for now. But I, w- I will be doing Wait, 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 wait. What? I'm what? Not, are you teasing not, something here? What? I'm Come not on. Done, Come on. I'm it's not it's, it's just you and me. I'm not done with sketch comedy by any means. Um, uh, and that is what I'll say for now. But uh, but I did have to step away from it for a little bit to kind of focus on some other stuff, especially this uh, special and, and the next one and, and the tour. And we got I got like some cool tours coming up, which will be fun. It's something that I'm just very comfortable in. And I just wanted to show that off and introduce people to that. That's why there's there's like there are characters in the special, but they're not there's there are no characters like anything that you would see me do on SNL or, or anywhere else. I, I didn't do purposely so they could see the other sides of me. There is something uh, different and special and unique about being on SNL and doing live sketch comedy that that, yeah, you kind of can't relax. At some points, I was very relaxed in that job, though, like especially towards the end. I was really comfortable. But like. You don't relax, though. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just too much going on and too much that could happen. You know, and you're running around and you're tired and it's like, you know, you're running around for two hours and you've been working all week. You know, there's just so many so many things that come into play there. As far as stand-up, like, I was asleep till noon that day. And then I got up, went to, worked out with my family and then, like, ate a casual lunch. You know what I mean? And then went and I did stand and did jokes that I've done a thousand times. You know what I mean? Like 
at a job I've done a billion times. So it was, it's just a very different beast all in, in general. And I love it for that. Cause wondering why you chose St. Louis rather than Chicago. Cause we know you as somebody from Chicago and that's the place that really formed you in a lot of ways. And I just wondered why you picked St. Louis over Chicago. I have really specific reasons why I did, why I picked uh, St. Louis over Chicago. Uh, my specials, why am I like this? And I felt like I had to t- go back to the beginning to really tell that story because my life started in St. Louis, you know, and I told stories about these different places, you know, and that's why I have them on my background. I have Mississippi, Chicago, and St. Louis in the background because those are the biggest influences to me. But I also didn't go to Chicago uh, for two other reasons. Uh, the second being that um, there were a lot of people shooting in Chicago, like a lot of people, like some people from there, some people not from there, but just everybody in their mama shooting in Chicago. And I'm like, dog, I'm not about to drop <laughs> The 17th Chicago special as my first special. Like, I'm not doing that. And then, you know, Chicago tries to play me sometimes. And I call Chicago home all day, but I went to school in the Burbs, and it's very, very prevalent. I do know that because it's in my special. I talk about it all the time. But Chicago has this mentality, bro, that they always try to make you feel like you're not from there. No matter how long you've been working there or, or been there, they always try to make you feel like you're not from there. And I'm like, I'm not about to have this argument with you now. I'm just going to St. Louis. I'll save my Chicago special for another time. We're going to take a break. My guest who clearly need to give Chicago a break is Chris Red. His <laughs> HBO Max special is Why Am I Like This? It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. <laughs> I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. You're listening to a conversation with comedian Chris Redd about his HBO Max stand-up special, Why Am I Like This? The show was recorded before he was attacked in New York on October 26th. Welcome back to the series part of the show. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest is Chris Redd. His terrific HBO Max special is Why Am I Like This? Uh, you can also hear this show at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. But it really starts off with not only do you start off with that question, but I think it's a really kind of interesting and daring way you start when you really start pulling back the layers on why you are like this and, and all these conditions that you have. You start talking about your anxiety and your depression, your ADHD, and when it hits you that you were going through all this stuff. And I'm not going to give that really great piece that starts the show away by going into too much detail. But I just thought, again, these things we we're talking about, all these things that you've done that came together, you're acting out part of it in a way that I hadn't seen you do that before on stage. But you're also telling a story about yourself. And you're also watching yourself tell the story. And I just thought, this is really a big evolution for you as, as a performer. It really, it's really hit me that you're saying it, because that's what it felt. It feels like. I mean, there were moments in that special that I, 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 there were tags and jokes I had never told before that just came that night. It was just like, damn, this, it really felt like a special night because it was like, I had done these jokes a million times. And then that night, it was just something in the air that there were moments that happened where I was like, oh, man, this only happened tonight because it was the night of the special. You know what I mean? Like it was just there were there were tags I was looking for that I could never find. And then I just found them that night. But it just it just felt like all the things I had been working on were all coming together and clicking in the right ways. And I felt very fortunate about that, you know. No, sure. But I just felt like watching this like, oh, there's all these things that 
clearly some part of you has been probably itching to do for at least the last year, you know, all these things you learn from doing SNL, the kind of concentration that demands, but also being able to step in and out of character, which is something you get from doing improv, but not the kind of focus and specificity that SNL demands. But then Again, this thing that you do really is a big part of this show where you're almost stepping into the point of view of the audience and watching all these things happen to Chris and then watching Chris watch the audience as these things are happening to Chris. I just thought, how much planning does that take? Or is that just something you were feeling, as you were saying, on that night? Uh, I think I've always looked at my life like I'm watching my life, especially I didn't understand the anxiety and depression and my, my insecurities. And I was young, trying to run these streets. A lot of the time, it was like a, a Wonder Years situation where I always felt like I was <laughs> narrating my own shit, watching me go through these things and asking these questions. And so as I'm writing the jokes and telling these stories, I'm bouncing between that, that introspective part of me looking at the things going on and me dealing with the thing head on. And the interpretation of like, what people are saying to me versus what they're actually saying. And then looking back as an adult and, and you know, and kind of like putting my bow on like what this complete thought is, if there is one, you know, this is the first time I've broken it down like this, but I, that's just kind of how I've always written comedy, just coming from music and just wanting to tell a story different. And, and then people I look up to like loving one-liners, but loving narrative and how, and how do I, how do I mesh that all together uh, with some care to work? You know I mean? I think that's just how, I write now, but you pointing it out and then me regurgitating my process with it is just going to make me think about it even more. So thanks. <laughs> no, I, I think it's exciting to watch, too, because I just found myself thinking and you you've in your act before you reference rappers, you reference Method Man or, or, or Biggie. And there's that thing, too, that comes from that kind of storytelling those guys used to do, too, that I feel like a lot of what you're doing and we starting to see this more and more now is that kind of an intersection between like rap and comedy and that sort of thing of being characters but also as a rapper you've got to be aware of the audience too i just think it's this really interesting kind of pivot point that you're in in this special that kind of brings all these things together for me yeah i i mean i've always felt like there's a, there a lot of parallels and a lot of similarities to uh to rap and, and and comedy for sure and the rate of jokes the rate that i tell jokes is definitely because I was a rapper and like, it's the same cadence as a, as, as, as punchlines in a rap song. You know what I mean? Like it's very much like I needed, to, I needed to feel rapid. And if it's not a rapid fire, it's because I'm building up to a bigger thing. You know what I mean? Like there are musical ways I approach comedy. I just wanted to make sure I did, I wasn't going to rap in my special because I think that's mad corny. <laughs> and, uh <laughs> You know, unless there's a real good reason to do it, like I just want to keep them words the world separate as f- man. <laughs> like, oh man, I'm sure you just remind me of that line. I forget for which song was the guy stuff, but yeah, I'm the best rapper in my apartment complex. It's like that kind of thing. But there's again, when you talk about energy in the show, you talk about big pimping energy and and these different kinds of energy that you bring to like each section. And it's bookended by being confessional at the beginning and the end. And I want to talk to you about the way you shape the show because it it starts one way, and you're playing with the audience and being that makes I was wondering, well, how's this going to go? What's he going to do? And like you said, that point you fell down. I thought this clearly wasn't planned because he's wearing leather pants and some really nice Jordans, so he wasn't planning <laughs> on scuffing those shoes. Right. Um, 
And so I was like, okay, well, I guess that really wasn't. But you do bring it back around to like a, a, a moment that's kind of big and funny and emotional, but also about self-awareness. I keep saying grown up. That's not what I mean, but it just feels like there's a command of yourself and material that make this an ideal time to do this. I got lucky, man. <laughs> I guess with, with with COVID, COVID was terrible and losing people was very terrible. <laughs> oh, from it, the man it, who said black people can't get COVID. Yes, I guess we know COVID is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, honestly, that, that was such a funny thing to me because, I, you know, everybody knows when you do update, an update segment, the last joke or last line is always something crazy and wild to say. And that's how I saw COVID at that time, because that's what it was. It was only like eight people had it on a boat somewhere on a cruise and it was white people. And so I was like, oh, I didn't know it was going to be a <laughs> pandemic. Who knew? I, I was just saying something wild. You know what I'm saying? I'll say, oh, black people can't get it. Ha. You know? And then the next week <laughs> they were like, oh, black people get it worse than anybody. And, you know, and, and then it became like, Chris works for the man. He, he's part of the propaganda. He's trying to, he's trying to make not not get vaccinated because he i'm like bro it ain't that deep i don't make enough money to work for the people you think i work for i'm <laughs> laughing because it's probably me who said all those things but uh, you were talking <laughs> about what, what it was like to be in that period and it did just give you some time to reflect and, and to build a show like this because it really it does it really is kind of i think really beautifully bookended the special the hour that i was supposed to do when i originally got this deal with hbo max was so different than the hour that is now, purely because I had started therapy in the pandemic. And and I was supposed to shoot right before everything shut down. And I ended up not shooting. And, and that could have been the best thing that ever happened to me because um, I thought I was being vulnerable. I always went for vulnerability. And, I, and, I, and at times I was, you know, like I did, a lot of my standup is, is pretty vulnerable, but I've always held like a little bit of shell over it. Like, I don't want no, everybody to know everything, you know? But also that thing you do when you're in the vulnerable moments, you make fun of the vulnerability. And here you really don't. I mean, here you just kind of yeah. let it play out. That's me trying to grow up a little and just trying to trying to make jokes when I need jokes and not jokes because I'm uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Because I want to just kind of sit in the feeling because that's the that's the important part is like how, I, how you feel about it. Because that's going to relate to people more than just like, <laughs> making a dumbass joke. Uh, I probably did make a dumbass joke. I just edited it out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely did it in some places. In other places, I was like, "Yeah, there you go, Chris. Where to sit in that?" Shit, you know, yeah. It's just, it's just a, it's just a fun place to be at where I am not so much being controlled by the emotions, but having a, a control of it a little bit, having an awareness of it. And I was like, it's important to me that I talk about all this now in this state. Because, you know, the goal is to heal and get better. And I think that anybody in my in my shoes or, or, or if you're thinking about therapy or whatever it is, like, I hope that the story that I'm telling can, like, you know, normalize it a little bit or push somebody towards getting that help or getting that extra support. You know what I mean? Because I think it's a very important thing, you know, and, and it's being talked about a lot more. You know what I mean? But I think it's, I think it's just important us as black men just continue to talk about this and put it out there. It doesn't have to always be serious to sell, even though it's a very serious thing. Sure, it's the treatment. My guess who gave us the benefit of some editing and this special, Chris Red. At why am I like this? Is Chris Red? But it's funny as we're talking about this, so I was thinking about how, again, going back to where we started, that story about the, the 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 punch, the way that story now ends, I can feel that there's something therapeutic about it. I mean, you actually like seeing it 
through your cousin's eyes. And there's some great lines that I'm not going to give away, but sweatpants is one of them. It's a great line. And it's like, that actually, that, that line could have been <laughs> the name of the special is so good. And so it's such a great button. But that end of the, of the show with that anecdote told from a completely different perspective, that 180, I can now see the benefits of your having gone through therapy and also that time to reflect that you're talking about when you had to take a couple years off from doing the show. I mean, it really feels like this thing that's come for you at the right time, doesn't it? Yeah, man. It's really like, it's. it really feels like it's signaling the next chapter. And I've moved between, I moved to the next chapter. I've been really good at knowing when to go uh, throughout my life in comedy and, 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 and in rap too. I, had, I knew when to quit. This was the hardest. Actually, that was very hard to not do anymore. But after this year, losing my one of my best friends, and I would lose another one of my homies two weeks after that, and just just kind of looking at life like, man, we gotta really. I have to go after what I want, and make sure I get make sure I get done what I want to finish before time is up because we don't never know when we about to go. So it it felt very in line and aligned with, with with my purpose to that the special was done on time and like. It's coming out November 3rd and it's like mad quick, you know, say all that like just it's kind of happening in a in a way that you read about almost. I'm like, I hope it plays out the way I, you know, uh, some of those success stories play out. But it it, it does feel like I'm shifting into another gear and um, and I'm really excited about that. We're talking about perspective and I can't let you go because there's a a great line uh, that I'm going to actually give away here, but not the whole routine around it. When you talk about the perception of SNL from several different perspectives. (laughs) And I just thought that's really kind of telling because it's also about that kind of that separation that exists between SNL and certain sectors of the population. That's all I'll say. But I just thought that was a really telling moment. It it was. It's it's also a shout out to my love for SNL fans. Dealing with that really changed. Like It really helped me appreciate what the show was and appreciates the love that people have for the show. It made me evolving to that moment feel real, but it also was a very real joke to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just thought it was it was such a great line. I thought, oh my God, that's somebody who I in the exit sign for a long time from, from 8H. Well, no, it, it wasn't necessarily about, that joke's not signaling my exit. I think I was always pretty open though. Like I was always open with, with, with saying that I was never going to be there forever. I was never like one foot in, one foot out. I, w- I was always kind of like reevaluating the show the way the show reevaluates everybody else. You know what I mean? It's like the show looks to see how long you're going to be there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's what I do. I do that too. It's like being in a relationship. Like when chick's trying to figure out when she's going to break up with you, I'm going to break up with you first. <laughs> it was definitely not that. I'm not, I love Lauren. I love everybody over there. So it's not, it wasn't that. But, but you know, it is, it is like I've always been very, I've done nothing but chase dreams, Elvis. Like I, that's all I've done my whole life. So I'm very keen on knowing what I need and when it's my time. When I'm not no longer getting it, something from a, a place or it's not serving me in the same way, and and trying to figure out when I'm gonna go. And before I had the show, I was like four years, I'm done. You know what I mean? Because uh, the contract is seven, and that seven scared me to death. Then I got there and I got the four, and I'm like, I can't leave like this. F- all that, you know. So I came back to fifth year. <laughs> and the fifth year was quiet. You know, fifth year was really fun. It was hectic, but it was really fun. And then I was just really debating on the sixth year, bro. And and uh, you know, we, we see what happened. But there's a lot of things that I had mentioned before that that played a part in. Like, I have to go see what the rest of the world got to offer, man. While while, I, while I'm still here and I can still do, shit, you know. 
I hope my guest Chris Red comes back. His new special on HBO Max, November 3rd, drops is Chris Red. Why am I like this? Uh, pleasure to talk to you, man. Thank you so much. Man, thank you so much for a dope, engaging interview, man. Chris Red is back out on the road after years at NBC's Studio 8H. You can see him practice his craft, stand-up comedy, in his HBO Max special, Chris Red, Why Am I Like This? Get previous episodes of The Treatment at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell, and it's The Treatment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It occurs to me, I've seen the actor Sharon D. Clark show the power of women who were forced to reckon with an anger they didn't want to deal with in period in three different shows between the Amen Corner or Caroline and Change or now in the revival of Death of a Salesman. And it is an honor to talk to her. Sharon, first of all, thank you so much. But these women have this interesting thing in common where they're all kind of these women who are underestimated and are forced to sort of reckon with this power that they have that others won't recognize in them. Yep, that's life, babe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, too, because it's just what I've come to really be entranced by your doing is the different way you sort of show stillness. I mean, with Caroline, it was this thing that was boiling that she didn't really, wasn't really forced to reckon with until Lot's wife, where, and she doesn't even start it in Lot's Wife. It's interesting that these women who are basically find a way to sort of keep these things to themselves until others force it out of them, and in period, and in American accents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pushing me, challenge me all the time, all the time. But there's, there's something wonderful about representing those kind of women who you don't usually see having a voice. I mean, particularly someone like Caroline, when you see her in stories, She's usually just the maid. She comes in, she drops some stuff off, she goes about her business. You never really get to know her story. And so what was wonderful for me about Caroline was that it was her story. She was sent in front of stage, never off stage, and you got to see how she felt that she was a woman who kept all this rage deep down inside. So she lived in this constant state of tension, which actually was a real bugger to play in the end <laughs> because you just find that you are holding on to this tension for the whole night until you get to Lot's Wife where you can let it erupt and explode and just vent your spleen, as it were. Well, certainly in these two worlds, we're talking about Odessa and Caroline here. There's, a, as you were saying at the outset, a kind of an archetypal strength and stoicism that we used to seeing in these women so often. And these characters aren't defined by stoicism. No, not at all. I mean, for me, with Linda, Linda is defined by her love for Willie. Um, and that is what I use as her driving force throughout the show. 
we're dealing with 1949, with mental illness, which is something that we're only just starting to discuss today, never mind back in the 40s. And what do you do in that situation where you can see that your man is having mental problems, but if you discuss it with someone, the men in white jackets could come and take him away and you'll never see him again. How do you deal with that on a day-to-day basis and try and keep his life as stable and as supported and filled with love as a grounding element to just get him to navigate each day by day and knowing what he's facing when he's going out to work, you know, traveling across states where, you know, he he's in could be going through sundown the towns where he could be lynched, you know, all that kind of stuff, all those kind of worries and what that would do to him. And then as he gets older, the fact that he is earning less, what that does to his manhood, um, how does that emasculate him? How does she continue to support him and bring love to the family and be the rock of the family. And that was one thing that Wendell and I discussed when we were starting to do Death of a Salesman, that we wanted audiences to see their love. I'd always in the past had a problem going, I don't understand why this woman is with this man. Um, what is it that's holding them together? And we've tried to make their love very tangible and very visceral so that you can see at the end that Willie chasing this elusive American dream when actually he had this wealth of love in his family to hang on to. But that's what he should have been hanging on to is that love and that love would have seen him through. But he was chasing something all too elusive. But also too, we're talking about people in Death of a Salesman with characters of color, we're talking about a kind of self-hatred that's forced on him. I mean, it's so fascinating to hear Willie talk about what he's paid and then to think, oh, he probably has never paid what he was due. And the idea of him saying this in the 40s is a kind of thing that if he were two states south of where he was standing, he would be lynched for that kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, there's so, so much that unpacks in the play when it's seen through this lens. One of the things that is always said to us when people come is that we must have changed the script. We must have, (laughs) you know, altered things to make things work for a black family. And I think the only thing that we have changed is the university that um, Biff is going to go to. So we've changed that to UCLA because he just wouldn't have gotten into the other one as a young black boy. um, I think when people see an African-American family, things in the script ring out much, much more zingier. It's enriched, it's vitalised, it's brought to the fore. Things like Willie in the hotel room with the woman who is white in our scenario. When he says to her, I think there's a law about it in Massachusetts, about them being together, then yeah, that zings out much more clearly when you see that on stage with a black man and a white woman in a hotel room. And that's not something we've added, that's always been in the script. When Willie says, other men do it easier, we know which other men he's talking about. We've actually taken out a word. So in the scene that I'm talking about, when Willie's talking about how, how he is not earning what he should be earning, um, he he's talks about a salesman that he saw when he was going in. And when Dustin Hoffman did it, Arthur Miller wrote Shrimp. When Lee J. Cobb did it, Arthur Miller wrote, wrote Walrus. And Almost, yes. Wendell doesn't say the word, but he intimates the word. 
And we all know what that word is without him having to say it. And that rings even clearer in this production, I think. Sharon, so often what you're doing is you're taking these things your characters won't recognize and turning them into these strengths, that she must know this about him because she sees it in her sons and what they're doing, that, that generational thing. And again, I go back to Odessa and what she wasn't saying. And also that beauty in the way these, all these characters use stillness in very different ways. And I want to ask you about that, especially since this iteration of Death or Salesman is informed by gospel. I want to talk to you about the way you're using stillness in the show here. That's not something that I feel I'm consciously doing. Really? Yeah, I'm not going, okay, Linda has to stand this way and she has to hold herself. It's just when when I'm in it, I'm in it. And that's that's how she is. She's holding a lot of that family together. You know, she's got three young men, basically, that she's looking after, three boys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're all men, but they're all just boys. And I think as a woman, having to hold that together and knowing knowing your men and knowing their flaws and their strengths, but knowing their flaws and, and loving them through and past that, I think that's something that women have done for eons and will we'll continue to do. It's just a way of being. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's not something I consciously think about. But I think these women that I'm playing have time to reflect. And I, I hope that what you're seeing is where that reflection takes them into, into how they reflect and how they move on through what they're finding in that reflection, if that makes any kind of sense. I mean, we talked about the beginning Miranda and I, about whether or not Linda knew about Willie's dalliances as, as they were. And I always think that, yes, she does know. And there is that scene when she's telling the boys about Willie's state of mind and how she's living through it, where Biff mentions a woman and she says, what woman? And it's he just says, go ahead. And it's never quite cleared up. But that that section for me has always said she has an inkling, she knows. But as long as that stuff is not coming to her front door and she knows that he's on the road a lot, that she's willing to let that pass because she knows that he does love her. She's not in a loveless marriage. And you see our William Linda as very tactile with each other, very loving, that they still fancy each other. One of my favourite moments in Death for Salesman is the fact that Willie and Linda have this dance at the top of Act Two. And you can see how they were living their life in the good times. And she says that he was full of such high spirits. It was like the old days. You can see what their relationship was like and how loving they are. So I think that she's gone, OK, this man who is spending quite a lot of time on the road by himself, I'll forgive that as long as that doesn't come anywhere near our relationship or interfere with what happens at home. I just find so much of this is about her just saying, finding strength in the places that she's going to find strength, having made decisions about this. Because again, as we're talking, like I was saying to you before, I assumed in this version, it never occurred to me before that she knew about the other woman. I'd always kind of gone, I don't know what holds this couple together. And so I wanted the love to be seen and that the love is strong and there is strength in that love. I also didn't want Linda to be 
this wishy-washy, doormatty character. Because I just think in that time, everything Arthur Miller writes in the script shows that she's the one who's holding it down. She's running the house. She's got the figures. She knows what needs to be paid and when. She knows everything. <laughs> she's the one. Willie <laughs> exactly. always turns to her. So if, if she is the person who knows everything and who is actually holding those purse strings when the money comes into her hands and knows where it should be going, knows how her sons ha- are, knows what their flaws are, know that he's just a philandering bum and that he's just a bird who comes and goes <laughs> in the springtime. If she knows all of this, how can she be wishy-washy? She has to have a strength. She has to have a strength of character. She has to have a certain amount of confidence. She has to know her men and be able to stand strong within them and hold them up and bring them to the fore while not losing herself. Because if she loses herself, that family is lost. In other versions of the play, when it's a white cast, it's about Willie having made this decision to be this guy. That he's pursuing this thing that he should know better. But for a man of color during that period, is pursuing this thing that he's told he should have access to, but he knows he can't. This makes Linda, for me, an incredibly earthbound character who understands exactly what the limitations are. She's literally talking about as much as he, but we sort of see the way she's fulfilled by that place and the potential garden around it. Uh, and for him, it's just this flight of fancy. For her, it's a real thing. It doesn't even feel like a period piece anymore watching this. That's the hard thing, really. I mean, you know, we, we are talking about a play that was written about 1949, 70 years on Broadway, and it feels still so timely, still so relevant now. You know, you look at it through this lens and you kind of go, well, what has changed really? You know, we've we've come through the Black Lives Matter movement and the civil rights movement, and we're still having to say these things. We're still having to hold up this mirror. We're still having to ask for equality and inclusion and, and diversity. And the fact that this play is ringing true as much today as it did back then makes me very sad in a way because, you know, it it just shows that we haven't come as far as we like to think we have and that we still have a lot of work to do. But if we can continue to hold up the mirror and to have conversations and to actually move past having conversations and having action, which is what we need now, we need action, If plays like this help us towards that goal, then that is my mission and that is my work. But as you're talking about that, I can't help but think, again, as you were saying in the first half of the show, about Lot's wife and about so often these characters you play have been characters who won't start the fight, but they will definitely finish it. And I want to ask you about that, man, because, again, these between these three women we're talking about with Odessa and Caroline and now Linda, they're all women who know where they have to make a stand for themselves in their very savvy way, strategic about it. Because they've had to be in life. You have to choose your battles sometimes. And, you know, there's been many times in this life where I've gone, okay, I'm going to let that one slide. That is a a small battle and I'm going to let that slide. But this one here, I have to say my piece. You have to know what's going on. Um, Because if I don't tell you, it's going to fester in me and I'm just going to get resentful or 
I'm not going to say it now and then someone else is going to say it and they're going to get the full brunt of it and they're just going to be like, well, what happened there? All I said was. And what they're getting is the rage from a million other times when it wasn't said. It's how you choose your battles and when you say what you have to say and when you speak your truth. And lucky enough, I'm very lucky to find women who are good at speaking their truth in whichever way for them, you know, they will hold it down. But if you push them, you will get the truth from them. It's the treatment. My guess who can read you like a book is Sharon D. Clark. She's currently starring in The Revival of Death of a Salesman on Broadway with Wendell Pierce. Again, since we're talking about what Miller wrote in Death of a Salesman versus the way it feels now for people of color, it's so much about for these men, about what they cannot have. I mean, it becomes this really fascinating thing because, especially for men of color, seeing movies and reading books and hearing music about what the world possibly has open to you versus the landlocked reality of that, of, in Willie's case, probably being a salesman who at his best made half of what other people made because of his color, even though there's probably time he's really gifted at it and being sort of eaten alive by that. And Linda, who... It's intimated just by the way she moves through the neighborhood and the way she talks about things, has an understanding of what landmines not to step on. She also has this beautiful, for me, sense of self, of self-appreciation that Willie will never have. And I want to talk to you about playing that note because it's, again, it's something I've not seen in a production of Death of a Salesman before. Even you talk about the version with Dustin Hoffman, they were competitive in that house because she was proving to him that he belonged there. Whereas in this case, she's proving to him, he's not seeing it, that she wants to be there. And that's the difference. She's, she's made her choice. She loves her man. And she's committed to that and still fancies him, still loves him, he is still her rock. And, you know, he says to her, you are my foundation and my support. And that is what he is for her as well. He is her foundation and her support. They've been together a while through life's tribulations and they are still together. In the past memory, when she says, you're the handsomest man in the world. And he says, oh no. And she says, to me, you are. That is her truth. She loves the bones of the man. <laughs> and Wendell <laughs> makes that so easy to do. Do you know what I mean? I don't have to look at Willie and go, okay, where can I find the love in this man? Because he is so irascible, <laughs> because he can blow up, because he's so quick tempered. But there is a joy and a love and a depth of love in the way Wendell plays Willie that makes him so easy to love. For me, this is informed by the musicality of both you and Wendell as actors, but also the musical element that's there. You know, she's listening for what she wants to hear. She's actually listening to what he wants to say rather than what he's saying, which is so much about, you know, delivery of a song. You're not listening to the words as often as you're listening to what it is the vocalist is putting across. And I just found that to be a fascinating new subtextual route for the show. But also when you know someone and you know what's going to make them kick off? How do you divert that as well? One of the things I I said to Miranda is that the things that can be seen from Willie's side as, I don't know, irascible or short-tempered and stuff like that, I said at this point, they make Linda laugh. Do you know what I mean? When you know someone and you know their (laughs) foibles, 
So she's not always getting upset about stuff. Some stuff just makes her laugh. And I just thought, because Wendell is so generous and does have a joy and fun about him, if he makes the woman laugh, if the woman can say, because, you know, you do make me laugh, you've got such a good humour, why doesn't Linda find him funny? So Linda can, like, can have that element where she's not always tutting at him. So when he goes and, you know, that that fridge consumes belts like it's a goddamn maniac. I chuckle at that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I chuckle at it because you're just going, oh, here we go. I, I'm, I've started in the here we go aside just to myself now when Willie's going to go off. It's just like, here we go. <laughs> because she knows him and it makes her chuckle. So it's not always about being rah, 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 rah. But I think when you've been with someone a long time, there are things about them that, you know, other people might go, oh, but you just go... <laughs> because you know them. And I think that brings a likeness to, re- to their relationship. You and you talk about Miranda, you mean Miranda Cromwell, your director. Yes, yes, both sorry. Of, both of you as Brits bringing this thing, well, first of all, to the stage in, in the UK and then here, what was it that you felt about the material that made you want to do it? Because even though you've done incredible work playing Americans in American productions, but... I wonder if it felt like it was close enough to an experience you'd had that you wanted to do it and that was a conversation you had with Miranda about it. I'm going to be completely honest with you. This was never a piece that was on my radar. Of course, I knew the show. I'd seen the Dustin Hoffman, Kate Reed version. I'd seen the Lee J. Cobb version. I'd never seen myself in that role. The piece was so much part of the American classic, canon, white, that I never saw myself in it. It was never something that felt accessible to me. It never felt like a piece that I wanted to do. But when Marianne came to me and said, I have this vision, I want to set it in this way, do you want to be a part of that? I was like, yes, of course. Of course. This is classic American theatre, one of the best plays ever written. And to see it through this lens now, to come at it from this perspective and show it in a completely different way. Yeah, I want to be a part of that. But when we started that, there was never any talk about bringing it to Broadway. I knew that we were doing it at the Young Vic and hopefully transferring to the Piccadilly, which is what we did. And I wanted to be a part of that story. I wanted to be able to bring this woman to life in this way, in the way that I saw her as a strong woman, as a matriarch, as the glue to the family, as the anchor. And Marianne was up for that. But to bring it here now, after Black Lives Matter, with everything that we've gone through as a Brit, I feel very blessed, very humbled, very honoured. Because if this production had started stateside, I wouldn't have had a look in because there was no one going to leave the States and come to Britain to find a British actress (laughs) to play a classic American role. So I am very lucky that it started in London and that I am able to be on this journey, bringing this show to Broadway and making history, doing it as it being the first African-American family to do this on Broadway, not the first African-American family to play the the Lomans, but the first on Broadway. 
It's an epic production in the way this show has not been before. By the end, it's, the show feels claustrophobic because Willie takes up so much space, generally. But now it's a much bigger show in this way by, by making these, these walls and windows. In some ways, you wonder if they're different for Willie than for anybody else, but having them move around the way they do, and I don't want to give too much away by saying that, but it feels like, again, making Linda, again, this partner who has the kind of will that we wish Willie had, it feels like a much larger emotionally scaled production to me. It doesn't feel like a living room drama. It feels very much like an epic thriller. And although we all know what the end is, getting to the end feels like a thriller. What Anna Fleisch has done with the set for me is just fantastic because it's so fragmented. You really can feel that you're inside Willie's head and you are fragmented and his world is fragmented as he sees it around him. And so with with the doors and the windows and stuff flying in and the house never really being fully formed until the very, very end when it's all bought and paid for and it's theirs but he's no longer there. You know, the irony of that is just wonderful. My guess is Sharon D. Clark. She's starring. She's going to keep doing it until I guess she gets it right. Uh, yet another version of Death of a Salesman on Broadway. Sharon, again, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Turn to mud and some folks go to school at night. She's not only liked, but well-liked. Actor Sharon D. Clark, Tony nominee and Olivia Award winner, who's part of the cast of the all-black revival of Death of a Salesman on Broadway. Find other interviews about rethinking conventions at kcow.com slash the treatment. You all can't do what I can do. Y'all strong, but you ain't strong like me. I'm gonna stand that I down on my throat. Gonna stand that I down on my I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treat with Tyler Perry on a friendship that's like the American equivalent of being anointed by the Queen. I'm Tyler Perry, and this is the treat. When I think about a treat, I think about something that's special and sweet and desired. And the thing that comes to mind is is a person who has been an incredible sister friend to me. She's been incredibly kind, passing on wisdoms, uh, and that's Oprah. I remember I got a call from, it was April Fool's Day, I got a call saying they want you on the Oprah show to talk about uh, your remembering your spirit, because I was talking about my play and, and so on and so forth, and I didn't believe it to be true, and I remember walking into the studio, and there she was in this lavender dress, and she had these shoes on that had silver keys on the shoes, I'll never forget it, and I was on stage talking to her, and it was all surreal for me, and I felt very much like I know you, like I know you so well. We're friends and we had just met. And it was years later that we actually became friends. But from that moment, I knew it. Because I know you, you don't like doing interviews. And 
why did you consent to do this one? Because you know, Oprah, I'm 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 not uh, political correct. You know, I don't worry about what people say. I say what's on my mind. Yeah. And you know, people don't want. There's to no one like her in the world. No one like. Or in my life, in the sense that if I'm going through something, she's like, oh, I went through that in 83. Here's what you do. Just having that level of mentorship, that wealth of information that I can go to that well anytime I need to to right, pull something, it, it's really amazing. Open your boxes. One, two, three. Everything you see on television is who she is. To know her personally, to have her as a friend, to have her as a confidant, somebody I can call at any time to talk about anything, has been really a treat in my life and one of the greatest blessings. There's no friend like Oprah, especially if you're Tyler Perry whose newest project as writer-director is A Jazz Man's Blues. It's on Netflix. The Treat is about inspiration that sparks creativity. Each installment features a key cultural figure from TV to style, film to sports, on a moment that transformed their lives and may change yours. Catch up on previous editions of The Treat at kcrw.com slash thetreatment. Rebecca Mooney produces and edits the show, which is mixed by Katie Gilchrist. Thanks to Anna Buss and Laura Kondarajan this week. Enough from me. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment.